Pastor Tilden Fang is going to minister the word of the Lord to us this morning. He did an excellent job in the earlier service, and so we thank God for his faithfulness this morning. Well, good morning, Abundant Life. Can you believe that it's already mid-November? Where did 2013 go? Well, it's been a joy to be in worship together, and now in that same spirit of worship, we enter into our time of hearing from God through his word. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we've already asked you this morning that you would speak to us. And Father God, we thank you that you are a God who loves to speak to your people. Father God, that's why you gave us your word of scripture to be able to show us who you are and how much you love us and how you're constantly working to redeem and restore and provide life for people. And God, the re- you, you desire to reveal yourself to us, and that's why you sent your son Jesus to this earth, so that we might know you and see you and be restored into relationship with you. And so this morning, we've prepared our hearts, and our hearts are soft, that we might hear what you long to say to us this very day. God, that there is something that you speak to us today that will help us to take that next step of walking with you. And Father God, I pray that you would not only just speak, but that you would do what only you can do through the power of your Holy Spirit, which is to touch our hearts and change us and transform us from the inside out, to make us into the people that you have called us to be. So Father God, we give you this time and we ask that you would have your way with this time and with us. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in a series in um, Galatians 5, and so we're going to start by reading from Galatians 5. I'm going to be reading from verse 1 to verse 6, and then continuing on from verse 16 to verse 26. Thank you for standing to honor the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then at verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. 
I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is God's Word. You may be seated. If it's your first time worshiping with us today, I want to extend my welcome. My name is Pastor Tilden Fang, one of the pastors here on staff, and I hope Abundant Life is always a safe and welcoming place for you to come to worship and to grow your relationship with God. And for those who've been here for the last few weeks, you know that we've been in a series on the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And we started two weeks ago, and in those two weeks, And in our service yesterday, we've covered the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. And in this service, we're going to conclude this series by looking at the fruit of gentleness and self-control. But before we turn our attention to gentleness and self-control in particular, I wanted to take a step back And I want to talk about two observations that come from the fruit of the Spirit as a whole in the context of Galatians. In other words, we might ask the question, why does Paul talk about the fruit of the Spirit as he's writing this letter to the church in Galatia? And the first observation is that that I want to make is that the fruit of the Spirit shows up, it's revealed And it's recognizable when the opposite of the fruit is expected. So it's in situations where we would expect to see the opposite of love. We'd expect to see hatred or despair or anxiety or impatience that we can recognize the unexpected presence of the fruit of the Spirit. And this is clear from the context of Galatians. The Galatians is all about a church that is going through a crisis. And on the one side, you have the folks that are associated with the law. They're also called the Judaizers. And they're arguing that if someone wants to follow Jesus and be saved, they need to become Jewish first. They need to obey all the ceremonial rituals and the requirements of the Old Testament law. And this is one of the reasons why there's so much uh, uh, discussion in, in the book of Galatians about the issue of circumcision, because that represents the Old Testament law that the Judaizers are saying everybody needs to follow. And on the other side, there's Paul, there's many of the Gentile believers, and Paul is arguing in verse 6 of, Galat- in, uh, verse six of Galatians chapter 5 that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. And Paul is arguing that the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross has established a new covenant between God and people. And that because Jesus has fulfilled all of the requirements of Old Testament law on our behalf, now people are able to enter into relationship with God purely by faith and through grace. And in the time that Paul was writing this letter, 
to the Galatians, the challenge of this issue was that it was extremely divisive. It was unsettled to the point where earlier in Galatians, in chapter 2, Paul describes a public confrontation that he had with Peter. Now, Peter is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's the most prominent of the apostles. And Paul confronted Peter publicly because Peter had started to change his behavior to give in to what the Judaizers were were recommending about interacting with Gentile believers. And you might imagine how this affected the Galatian church to see two of their most prominent leaders publicly disagreeing about one of the essentials of the Christian faith. And in such an environment, we might expect the church to just descend into chaos. The expected fruit of this kind of environment, this kind of tense situation, would be hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. These are all the things that are listed in Galatians 5 verse 20. Things that naturally come out of people when they're stressed and in conflict. But instead, Paul writes this letter to the church to remind them that even in circumstances that should bring out the worst in people, the spirit of God can bring forth fruit that allows people to act differently. And what Paul is saying is that even in the midst of conflict, And no, this is conflict that Paul initiated because it was so important to stand up for the truth of the gospel. That even in the midst of conflict, those who belong to Christ are empowered to act with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control because of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the context of Galatians, and it's a practical lesson for us as well. The fruit of the Spirit shows up in our lives when it's least expected, but it's most needed. It shows up on our worst days when nothing is going right, or when tragedy strikes, or we've entered into a conflict with someone that we love and care about. That's when we can recognize the fruit of the Spirit. And you can almost imagine Paul giving us an option on days like that to be able to pray and to acknowledge there's nothing in me that wants to respond to this situation with anything good. And maybe I've already responded with things that I regret, I wish I hadn't said. But because of the Holy Spirit within me, God, help me to access resources to respond to this situation with love and joy and peace instead of what my flesh is wanting to respond with. So that's the first thing. The fruit of the Spirit is designed to show up in circumstances when it's least expected, but most needed. The second thing that I want to note about the context of Galatians and what it teaches us about the fruit of the Spirit as a whole is that we're all works in progress when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. And in order to see this, you actually don't need to go any farther than Paul himself, the author of this letter. Now, Paul doesn't apologize for standing up for the truth of the gospel, but he also doesn't represent himself as the perfect expression of the fruit of the Spirit. And, you know, one of the things, the fruit of the Spirit that we're looking at today is gentleness and self-control. It comes at the end of the list. 
And I think that one of the reasons why Paul might have put them at the end of the list is because he knew that these were things that he struggled with, and he probably struggled with them his entire life. And for evidence, we only have to go back about 10 verses to Galatians 5, 11, and 12. And Paul gives an example of struggling with some of these fruit. So here Paul's explaining again why circumcision is not needed. And this is what he writes in verse 11. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, the ones who are still advocating for circumcision, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now, I don't know about you, but telling people to go ahead and castrate themselves is not exactly the epitome of gentleness. That was a growth edge for Paul, clearly. And that's encouraging to me, and it should be encouraging to you as well. If the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, is still struggling to grow in the fruit of the Spirit in every aspect of his life, if he's still a work in progress, then why should we pretend to be any different? And hopefully we can simply say, I absolutely need God's Spirit in me to grow fruit, to help me to cultivate love and joy and peace and the rest. But because I'm a work in progress, even when I fall short, even when I'm disappointed, I don't need to beat myself up. I don't need to condemn myself because God does not give up on us. And so we don't need to give up on ourselves. Hallelujah. That's the the power of grace. So those are two context points. Fruit shows up when it's least expected, but most needed. And we're all works in progress. So now I want to turn our attention to the fruit of gentleness and self-control in particular. And for this sermon, I'm going to focus on what gentleness and self-control have in common. Because in many ways, they're two sides of the same coin. The Greek word for gentleness comes from the same root as the word for meekness. And so it's the same root word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the best definition of gentleness, of what it means, is actually not, or gentleness or meekness, is actually not like wimpiness or weakness, but it's actually strength that is under control. Gentleness is strength that is under control. So one of the ways that this was used often in antiquity was talking about discipline. So if you're a parent and you're disciplining your child, to discipline your child with gentleness means that you're firm enough to achieve correction, but you don't go, you're not any firmer because the discipline that you are providing for your child is not intended to bring shame or to be, or to bring embarrassment. So that's the picture of strength that is under control. And of course, this is very similar to the term self-control, which essentially means that our desires and our preferences and our behavior is under restraint and under control. So in this sermon, I'm often going to use the term self-control as a broad term to include gentleness, because the essence of what Paul is talking about is the idea of control. 
that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have control over our strengths, how we impact people, how we shape people, how we influence people, and our weaknesses, what we're tempted by, what we desire, how we behave. Now, right from the start, as we talk about the idea of self-control, I think many of us may respond with some mixed emotions. And that's because our culture is obsessed with self-control in incredibly unhealthy ways. When we think about self-control, some of the things that might come to mind are things like eating less, exercising more. Think about all the magazines and books and websites and shows that are out there that are focused on self-control and health. Or we might think about spending less, saving more, budgeting. Think about all those other shows and websites and articles that are focused on self-control and money. Or we might think about procrastinating less, working more, spending less time on watching TV or Facebook or Netflix, spending more time with family or with kids. Think of all the ways that we're pummeled with messages about self-control and our time. And I haven't even mentioned self-control and anger, self-control and sex or pornography, self-control and substance abuse, or self-control and your smartphone. That struck a little bit of a nerve, huh? Someone's like sliding their smartphone into their pocket right now because it was a... This is the landscape of self-control in our culture. And because it's all focused on outward behavior, it's all about performance and comparison with other people. It's all about human effort. The messages that we hear are laced with undercurrents of shame and guilt and measuring up. And it's oppressive. You know, one of the most vivid illustrations of this was a recent photo that made its way around the Internet. And I wish I could show it. It's probably a little bit inappropriate. um, So otherwise I would. But this photo, which was posted to Facebook, was of uh, a mom who has three kids under the age of three. And in this photo, she's standing over her kids. They're they're at her feet. Their ages are by each of them. The youngest is like four months old. And she's wearing this workout outfit that just shows off how incredibly toned and fit she is. And the caption of this photo is, what's your excuse? And the message of this photo is, what's your excuse for not looking like me? That's the essence of the world's approach to self-control. Buck up, just do it, what's your excuse? We fall into a dangerous spiritual trap if we think that when the Bible talks about self-control, it is only one more oppressive voice dressed up in spiritual language that is basically telling us to measure up and asking us, what's your excuse? And I want to be very clear about this. The Bible's understanding of self-control is not the world's understanding of self-control. And in fact, if we understand and embrace the Bible's definition of self-control, it will set us free from the oppression of the world's definition of self-control. 
So the primary goal of our time together this morning is to be able to discern the difference between the world's understanding of self-control and God's understanding of self-control. Because it's so important for us to get this right. Because when we mix them up and we think that they're the same, we poison our relationship with God and we inflict immense suffering on ourselves. So that's what we're going to get clear today. And I want to start by looking more closely at the world's understanding of self-control. And what we see in Scripture is that the world's self-control, which is a self-control that is based on human effort apart from the Spirit of God, is actually a counterfeit form of self-control. Let me say that again. Self-control apart from the Spirit of God is counterfeit self-control. What do I mean by counterfeit self-control? Well, counterfeit self-control is a little bit like counterfeit money. So say you're walking through the woods one day and you come across a bill. You pick it up, you look at it, you see the hundred in the corner and you start to get pretty excited. Okay, some of you might start to dance. I wouldn't start to dance, but you might start thinking about what you can buy with this hundred dollar bill. And then you take a closer look at it and then you realize that instead of Benjamin Franklin staring back at you, it's actually like Bozo the Clown. And then the bill becomes worthless to you because a counterfeit bill, no matter how much it looks like the real thing, if it's not genuine, then it doesn't have value. So Paul makes this exact point when it comes to worldly self-control. He writes about it in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. And he says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And what Paul is saying in this verse is that there's a counterfeit form of self-control that can even appear to be wise and spiritual, but it lacks any value because it doesn't actually help at all. It doesn't come from the spirit of God working in a person's life, but it comes from some other motivation. And in fact, when we look at where the motivation for counterfeit self-control comes from, what we find is that counterfeit self-control actually moves us further from God. So let me give you an example. Let's say that there's someone who is incredibly controlled about how they spend their money. They're very frugal. They don't waste a lot of money buying things. They save. They budget. And you might look at them and you might think, wow, that person is incredibly self-controlled. But what you might not see is that underneath their behavior, there's a motivation that's rooted in love for money. There's a deep anxiety about the future. And there's a conviction that the more money that they're able to amass, the more secure that they will be. Now, in fact, the more that they exercise self-control around money, the more that they magnify their love of money 
And the more that they magnify their sense that security is only found in the size of their bank account. And they actually move farther and farther away from God because they're basically saying to God, I don't trust you. I don't need you as long as I have enough money. It's counterfeit self-control. Or we could take a look at someone else who is incredibly careful about what they eat, their health, how much exercise they get. And you might look at them and you might think, wow, you just totally passed by that brownie that I totally would have eaten. Wow, you have amazing self-control. But underneath the surface, their motivation for self-control might be from vanity. It might be from believing that how they look on the outside is far more important than anything else to do with what's going on on the inside. And as they continue to exercise self-control around what they eat and health and how much they exercise, they're actually moving farther and farther away from God. Because they're basically saying, as long as I look good and other people are telling me that, I don't really need to be concerned with who I am. It's counterfeit self-control. And you know, this even applies to things like gentleness. You might know someone who is the soul of gentleness. Always kind, always polite. But it is possible that their motivation for their gentleness comes out of being controlled by the opinions of other people, by being afraid of conflict and by a desperate need to be liked. And in fact, the more gentle that this person is, the more they are feeding their need to please other people and the farther they are moving from God. In all three of these examples, you have someone that looks self-controlled on the outside. But on the inside, they actually aren't self-controlled at all. They're actually controlled by self. They're controlled by their selfish desires, the desires of their heart that have nothing to do with the Spirit of God. And because of this, counterfeit self-control usually doesn't come with any other fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't come with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. It comes with other stuff. It comes with pride, right? Like, what's your excuse? I can do it. Why can't you? It comes with envy. Wow, I thought I was doing it pretty well until I saw that other person who's doing it far better than I am. Or it comes with shame and guilt, when we feel like we just don't measure up. And counterfeit self-control is almost always selective. We're able to be self-controlled when something matches our personal agenda and what we want. But at the same time, there are often other areas of our life where our life is totally out of control, and all we can do is try to hide it. This is what counterfeit self-control is like. Now, here's the key question. When we take a look at our lives and all the things that we wish we had more control about, can we recognize patterns where we started to buy into the world's definition of self-control? I know I can. It's the product of living in a world where the messages of counterfeit self-control flood the airways, flood our media, and flood into our lives. But we don't have to settle for counterfeit self-control. 
The good news is that when Paul says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, he's not talking about counterfeit self-control. He's talking about real, spirit-led, God-breathed self-control. He's talking about self-control that isn't just a superficial change on the outside, but a product of spiritual transformation on the inside. And one of the hallmarks of authentic self-control is that it flows out of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. It flows out of all the other fruit of the Spirit. Because when we have those things, when the presence of the fruit of the Spirit provides for us love and joy and peace, which is what we're all longing for, those are the deepest desires of our soul. And when we have those things from God, we're able to be content. And that divine contentment makes authentic self-control possible. We're able to say, you know what? I don't need to find my security in money and hoard it. Because my security and my peace is in God. I don't need to feed my vanity And find my value and my physical appearance because my identity and my joy are in God. I don't need to always agree or give in to other people or be afraid of conflict, be afraid of speaking the truth in love. If I have God's unconditional love and affirmation, you know, one of the most powerful ways to live out verse 24, where Paul says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires is to be able to acknowledge those passions and desires and then to be able to say, I don't need it. What they provide for me is not better than what God has already given to me. I don't need it. And in that place where we're able to have that distance and that lack of compulsion, we do have the ability to be careful with our money. But out of a motivation to honor God and to be able to be generous to the needs of those around us. And because of the Spirit of God, we can exercise self-control around our health and around what we eat but out of a desire to be ready to serve God and to serve other people and to be able to do so with energy and vitality. And by the Spirit of God, we are able to control our strength and to be gentle, but not because we're afraid of other people and their opinions, but because even when we're exercising tough love, we want to be gracious because we have received so much grace from God. And obviously, these are just three examples that represent many other areas where we might struggle with self-control. But the principle of choosing for spirit-led self-control instead of counterfeit self-control applies to every area of our lives. This is the good news. The Spirit of God sets us free from bondage to counterfeit self-control and gives us an alternative that brings true abundant and good life. So I want to give you a picture of what the impact 
of the fruit of the Spirit, including self-control, is like in our lives. In 1980, a major project began at the Vatican to restore the frescoes of the Sistine Chapel. Now, these are some of the greatest masterpieces of Western civilization. And the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel was painted by Michelangelo in the early 1500s, so over 500 years ago. And since that time, over the centuries, they've been covered by layers of grime and candle wax and soot and dirt. And as the layers built up, the original intention of the artist was obscured. And over the centuries, many art historians have actually written volumes about the Sistine Chapel and about Michelangelo. And because they could only go on what they saw, they wrote about how Michelangelo loved to use shadowy colors and had, you know, kind of this dark approach to, you know, his Renaissance masterpieces. Now, here's a picture of part of the Sistine Chapel before restoration. And if you can look at this screen, this screen's a lot better because the lighting is uneven on this screen. So that's a picture of the Sistine Chapel before restoration. And when the restorers began to clean the frescoes, they stripped off the layers of dirt and wax and grime. And what they saw was that the original colors that Michelangelo used were vivid and brilliant. Okay, so here's the same panel after restoration. You can't see it so much on this one. Okay, this one represents the fact that we need the illumination of the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? Uh, okay, this one is an accurate representation of the before and after on the Sistine Chapel. And if you can't see it on this side, I really apologize. You can look it up on Wikipedia. It's stunning, okay? Ask the people on this side. It's stunning, <clears throat> And after the restoration, one art scholar said, every book on Michelangelo will now have to be rewritten. Because after centuries of being obscured, the original intention of the artist was finally revealed. You see, we are God's masterpieces. God created us in his own image, full of strength and beauty and courage but part of the original intent of God's creation in you and in me has been obscured by layers of dysfunction, of hurt, of sin, of wounds from other people, of the craziness of the world that has made its way into our lives. But God is a God of restoration. And when we say yes to life with God, when we follow Jesus and God gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit at work in our lives, he isn't so much making us into a totally different person. He's restoring us to be the people that he always intended for us to be from the beginning. <clears throat> so when we talk about the Holy, uh, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit growing up in our lives, we aren't talking about something alien coming in and replacing our flesh or our personality. We are, in a way, surrendering or following the Holy Spirit. There is a way that you can think that we're being controlled by the Holy Spirit, but it's a process that actually shapes and changes and restores who we are to God's original intent. And when love and joy and peace 
and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control flood into our lives, we become restored to our true selves. I become the Tilden that God always created me to be. You become the you that God always created you to be. And together we can become part of the work that God is doing to restore the world into what God intended the world to be. The presence of the Holy Spirit strips off the layers of dysfunction, the guilt of sin and shame, the grime of idolatry, and the true colors of our personhood created in God's image are able to shine forth with vivid brilliance. And you know what? There are opinions and criticisms and judgments that other people have of us that will need to be completely rewritten because of the work of God in our lives. Hallelujah. That's why it's so important that we don't dare let our lives be defined by anyone else's opinion of us. Because God is doing a restoring work in our lives that is bringing us into alignment with his plan and purpose for us, with his original intention for us. And those opinions that can be so damaging are going to be totally flawed and will need to be completely rewritten. The Holy Spirit at work in our lives is God's ultimate restoration project made possible by the blood of Christ so that we can be the people that God always intended for us to be. So in the time that remains, I want to offer three practical next steps to cultivating authentic self-control in our lives. Because it is a real process, the Holy Spirit at work in us. And there is a role that we play in cultivating the environment for the fruit to grow. So the first practical step, cultivating self-control, is remembering that authentic self-control is about transformation and not just about external behavior. And the only way that we experience transformation is by going deeper in our relationship with God. So if we want to experience authentic self-control, we need to focus on growing our relationship with God. We need to spend time falling more deeply in love with our Savior. And as we spend time in prayer and in God's word and meditating on God's love for us displayed through Jesus on the cross, What we'll find is that the battle for self-control will slowly shift from a battle of have to to a battle of want to. You know, one of my friends made this really clear for me when he was sharing with me around the battle against sexual temptation. And he shared, you know what, for many, many years when I struggled with sexual temptation, I always felt like it was something that I had to do. It was an obligation that I needed to fulfill, but I didn't want to. But as my relationship with God grew, I actually started to want to be free from sexual temptation because I knew it was genuinely God's best for my life. 
And when he shared that with me, I thought that is such a powerful insight. The change from have to to want to comes from a deeper relationship with God. The second thing, as we've seen today, is that authentic self-control requires confronting the secret motivations of our heart, which are often spiritual strongholds. Our struggles with food, exercise, time and money, substance abuse and sex, many of these reflect underlying strongholds in our heart about what is valuable or precious or important. And the process of confronting these strongholds means that we don't just try to change the external behavior, but we have to get at the root of these strongholds in our hearts. And the tools that God has given us to overthrow strongholds are the weapons of repentance and prayer and forgiveness and confession. When we practice repentance and confession and prayer and forgiveness, we undermine the power of these strongholds in our lives. And I want to especially highlight the impact of confession, not just to God, but to another person. Because so many of the areas of struggle that we have around self-control thrive in their hiddenness and concealment and their shame. And it's when we're able to confess what we're struggling with to another person, someone who we trust, someone who understands grace, that the power of our hidden struggle, hidden strongholds can begin to be broken. And that's part of the reason why community and godly relationships are so important to our spiritual growth. So the final practical step that I have for us is simply don't give up. I know I've been there so many times in my life where I have felt defeated an area of self-control, and I felt like God cannot possibly love me. But in fact, just the opposite is true. God loves us unconditionally, and his love and grace is made perfect in our weakness. And one of the best things that we can do is to not reduce our entire relationship with God and reduce it to a single struggle. We may not be experiencing victory in a particular area, but if we continue to grow our entire relationship with God, we can trust God's timing for breakthroughs in our life. And I would encourage you to especially, if you're in this place, especially try to grow your relationship with God by trying to do something new. Try to experience God in a new way. And maybe that's going on a missions trip. Maybe that's joining like a small group community if you've never done that. Maybe it's attending a Christian retreat or a conference that you haven't been to. But do something different to experience God in a new way. Keep growing with God. And as we continue to journey with God and not give up, God has a way of bringing transformation into our lives, cultivating all of the fruit of the Spirit, including the fruit self-control. Amen? Amen? Would you please stand with me?